You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word then to John 5, 1 through 18. John 5, 1 through 18 is the next section that we come to as we're just working our way narrative by narrative, line by line, section by section through this uh, uh, gospel of John for us. And as we come to this text today, we are confronted with the reality that in our finiteness, we often forget the constant activity of God. That when we go to bed, He stays awake. That when we come to a crossroads in a decision, he already knows the way to go. Psalm 127 uh, describes the Lord as a vigilant watchman over his house, your house, my house, our hearts. Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, God never clocks out. He, he never wanes in his ambition to accomplish his work in your life and in my life. And see, during Jesus' earthly ministry amongst the people here, where the Son of God put on flesh and embraced the limits of full humanity, the emphasis really in John's gospel is on Jesus' full deity, the fact that he is God, and he is, as God's Son, always at Work And the shocking reality for the Jews in this passage and this invalid man at the pool of Bethesda is that he not only claims to be God, but he does the work that only God can do in his life. Now join me in John 5 and let's uh, just read the scripture and set the stage and, and see what Jesus is up to next in this uh, unfolding journey of his earthly ministry. John 5, 1 through 18 is... Our text this morning. Follow along in your Bible as I read it. It says this, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now this is God's word for God's people. After reading this passage, there's some questions that kind of surface, at least in my mind, and maybe in yours, as we, you know, wrestle with and chew on the details of this passage. But we're like, why is this man healed? And why are the Jews so bent out of shape? Why, 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 are, they, why are they actually on a murder mission for Jesus? Well, it's the answer to these questions, and it's really uh, because of the central truth that this passage is teaching us this morning is that God is always at work among his creation. Write that down in your text, write it down in your notes there, that God is always at work among his creation. In this text, to heal this invalid man and to also reform their pursuit of holiness. And it's out of this central truth that these things uh, things begin to flow from it. Jesus has just claimed and demonstrated that he is, in fact, the Son of God. That he, he, he is God. John the Baptist testified to that truth in chapter 1, as did Nathaniel acknowledge it in chapter 1. And then Nicodemus got a lesson from Jesus that he's the Son of God in chapter 3. And now Jesus here in chapter 5 is showing us that the work that the Son of God was sent to do among his creation. And Isaiah 35 even prophesies about what this work will look like. Long before it happened, the prophet Isaiah is saying that when the the Messiah would come, when the Son of God would be there, these things would happen. Look at it on the screen here, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. See if this sounds familiar. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Does that sound familiar to what we just read in in, uh, John 5? Yeah. We experience a taste of it in this passage with a fullness yet to come at the return of the Messiah. And of course, this truth, these things that the God would do, the work that he would do, collides with our own work collides with uh, what we think we can do, our own attempts to make ourselves holy through the keeping of religious rules or the following of urban legends, which is exactly what is happening in the text that we just read. See, flowing out of the reality of that central point that God is at work, we come to grips with this in the first nine verses, is that we can do nothing to save ourselves. Write that down. It's the first point there flowing from the center is that we can do nothing to save ourselves. As we come to uh, chapter 5 here, we really enter into an incredibly hopeless situation in these verses. Uh, An experience that maybe you have had if you've traveled to a third world country where it's very destitute or some of the forgotten places in our own nation. It is incredibly hopeless. And Jesus comes there, just the opening lines just kind of don't really give us very many details. It just says, after this, after an indefinite amount of time, after he has left Cana in the region of Galilee that we just uh, finished in chapter 4, he comes to Jerusalem for there is a feast of the Jews that are happening. And it's unnamed. 
named. We're not told, like in many of the other scenes in John, the specific festival or feast that he's there for. It's unnamed, and, it, and I guess it doesn't necessarily matter whatever feast it was. It had brought Jesus back to Jerusalem. Like many of the Jewish men of that day had made this trek back to Jerusalem to, uh, to, uh, uh, to observe it. And apparently he's alone for none of the disciples are mentioned in the text. But he goes to this place, this pool, uh, this place called Bethesda. And it's just outside the temple. Here's a little map of the area. You can even go and visit it today. But you have the temple mount and where, uh, you know, out, just outside the city where the uh, tomb and uh, where Jesus was crucified and Herod's palace. But just kind of outside the corner was this pool. And as we learn in the text here, there's this pool of water and they had built these porches with covers over them, five of them around it. Okay, there's this uh, pool that is fed by an underground stream of water that uh, that that surges from time to time, like as an aquifer is filled up, then the stream, you know, pushes more water and it kind of gets stirred up. The bubbles uh, come uh, and uh, and 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 so there there's people who are sitting there, uh, a multitude of them that we learn, and they had built these porches with these covers to uh, shade the little hundreds of hurting people who are gathered there. Now, depending upon your translation, the ESV omits it, rightly so, but if you have like the King James Version, you may uh, see, that, or if you're reading along, it's, it's missed out, or if you're really observant, just look, is there between verse 3 and 5, what's missing there? Verse 4, the scribble error, a publishing error? No, it's just omitted. You don't have it here in the ESV. Some translations do because uh, there was a scribal addition along the way uh, after. So this, what we have here is a representative of what was inspired, what John wrote in the earliest manuscripts. And somewhere along the way, some scribes, as they were copying the word of God, added some, uh, some additional things about an angel of the Lord here, which were not included in the original. And so the ESV omits it. And, you know, as we start talking about textual criticism and, and uh, publishing and translation and inspiration and all these things. Those are some big topics, and we actually have a podcast. Consider it. There's an episode on there because the same is also true in John 8 and the story of the adulterous woman not being included in the original manuscript. And so if you're curious about all that stuff and how that works and how we got our Bibles, listen to that podcast for a, a much more elaborate uh, uh, description and explanation of what is going on here. But all that to say here is we come to the text, and it's really a pitiable place. So, of course, Jesus goes there, right? The blind, the lame, the paralyzed are gathered here, and Jesus has a divine appointment with a particular man in the same way that he had at the well in Sychar, an appointment with a woman, a Samaritan woman there. He, He doesn't come for all of those, the multitude that are gathered, but he has an appointment with just one. A particular man here that we learn has been an invalid for as long as I've been alive. 38 years and he knows him it says in verse 6 Jesus sees him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time now it's not just this usage of no it's not just like Jesus had the fact sheet you know like the back of a baseball card and sees when he was born and all the things about him no 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 he knows his heart he knows the the condition of what is going on in his life and that's why he asks this heart penetrating question in verse 6 do you want to be healed Do you want to be healed? And at first glance, it's like, well, hello, Captain Obvious. Uh, Jesus, like, 
What do you think? 38 years, hasn't been able to walk. What do you think? Yeah? It's like asking Savannah, my 20-month-old Savannah, do you want a cookie? Of course she wants a cookie. You know, she gets the twinkle in her eye. She comes, you know, she jumps into your arms to get a cookie. Even at that age, she's, we've done it all wrong with her and introduced her to sugar and sweets and, you know, but Jesus isn't, you know, bonehead like I am. And so is the question so obvious or the answer to the question so obvious? You know, maybe not. Some people enjoy their misery. Some people enjoy the comfort of no responsibility and having all their needs taken care of and not having anything. See, not all homeless want a home. Not all the sick actually want to be healed. In their heart of hearts, no, maybe they just continue on it in, in, in that life and want to. And it begs the question even of us, do we really want to be healed? Do we really want freedom from our sin? Do we really want to be set free from our enslavement to the things that so easily entangle us? And really when we're asked pointedly in these moments, the reality is I kind of like my sin. Actually, I really like my sin. I don't know that I really actually want to take the way of escape all the time. And we are, it's maybe not so just obvious. This is a question really for both the unbeliever and the the believer where we want the blessing of being a Christian, but not always the cost, the cost of following Jesus. We don't always want to deny ourselves to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. Where the passing pleasures of sin taste sweet and we don't want what it's going to take in order to truly follow Jesus. And yet this is the call of following Christ. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be set free from your sin? Look at the answer that the man gives in verse 7. It's interesting because he doesn't necessarily say outright yes or no. No way, I don't want to get healed. Get out of here. Yes, of course. What do you think? It is yes, I want to be healed. He refers to all of his attempts over the last 38 years to heal himself. He said, I need help to get there and no one, but I have nobody to put me in the water when it's stirred up and, and all that. See, there was this legend that when the water stirred up, those that got in it, those that were first, they would have a chance of being healed. He's saying, I've tried and I have nobody. I need help and you have to be fast in the first in order to have any chance to get there. And he has neither. You see, somewhere, sometime, somebody had claimed that these bubbling waters had a healing power and now all the multitude of helpless folks would do anything for it to be true. So desperate that they would lay there day after day, moment after moment, vigilantly watching in order to make a mad dash for this urban legend to just be remotely true. Reminds me of a time from several years ago where Pastor Michael and I went to uh, Big Bend. He and I have been friends 
while and back in like 2010 and we decided to go on this uh, multi-day backpacking trip around Big Bend. Anybody been to Big Bend before? It's desert-like, it's beautiful, it's majestic, lots of cool different areas uh, all throughout it and we had had this trip planned as right before summer camp was going to begin. I was working at Camp Eagle here at Vista Camps and and so we had this uh, trip planned and we made the long early mornings like four or five hours out there and uh, we get to the gate, we pay our fee and like we cross in and something in my stomach just did not agree. I don't know what I was sick or a thing, but we like cross over and I have to jump out of Michael's van and I just like, there's my breakfast all over the side of the road. I just felt terrible body aches, began vomiting, and, uh, and it was not like, it, we, we weren't backpacking, <laughs> let's just put it that way. But I felt bad, not only of body, I felt bad for Michael. He had never been there. I'd been there many times, explored the park. It was a, it, it, it's a phenomenal place, and we continue to go throughout the, the day, and he's taking care of me, and, and I'm just trying to just like, uh, just muster up any sort of strength. And by the end of the day, we get to this area of the park we'd driven to, we didn't backpack, but we drove over to it because there's this hot springs over on the east side of the park beautiful it's great water and so it's coming down to evening i'm, I'm still feeling poorly bad like i can make it back let's go i want you to be able to see this and we get in that water we're sitting in it for a while and i'm I, i'm not kidding you by the time we got out of that i felt tremendously better I felt, I, I, you know, I don't want to say like, I was healed. No, don't anybody like hear that. I'd be like, the next time you start vomiting or, or you get sick, like, we have to make the trip out there. We have to go sit. There's healing waters in, in Big Bend. Like, it's just an urban legend. There are others. But it did something to help me feel better where I got a good night's sleep. We didn't continue to backpack. I wasn't going to go that far. But it, uh, uh, it, 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 it helped. And you know, It reminds us in these moments when we are desperate to do anything, when we are desperate to be saved, we will listen to anything and we will try to do anything in our own life to save or to heal ourselves. But as we've seen in the passage and as the man's response to Jesus' question indicates, right, it's our, our works can't save us. All our attempts to be the fastest and the first uh, for years and decades cannot, ha- cannot help us. And it reminds us here of this reality that we cannot put our trust in any sort of human to get us there. Any mere human to make us the first and the fastest we can't rely on. We can't rely on any human or any family member or any government to save us nor their faith. Let alone we cannot put our hope in just urban legends, those things that maybe sound good, that people have found relief or help from. It is only Christ who can save us. Our only hope for healing, for salvation is found in him and in his words, his gospel that bring healing to this man and salvation to our souls. See, look at Jesus' words, get up, take your bed and walk and bam, it happens. We've seen that time and time again in, in, uh, in the just John's gospel alone, right? He says a few things, and it is as good as done. But see, in our sin, we are like the invalid, unable to save ourselves, try as we might for decades, putting our hope in whatever makes us happy and or whole. But the Son of God is at work in this text to show us the folly of this. To show us the futility of trying to save ourselves, where his ability is the only ability to do what we cannot do. 
And as the story just unfolds in this incredible healing, as the story unfolds further, we learn also to not put our hope in our ability to keep any sort of religious uh, ritual. See, flowing from the center as well of God's work, it's this, that Jesus is at work to rescue us then from our self-righteousness. Write that down. It's the second point here, part of God's work. Jesus is at work to rescue us from our self-righteousness, and only he can do it. Only he can. See, uh, come back to the text here at the end of verse 9, because the story rises with this, uh, with this reality. Now that day was the Sabbath. And to a first century Jew reading this passage, or let alone the people that were there, when they hear that word, the healing that happens, and then that sentence that it was the Sabbath, you could hear like an audible gasp. What? He did what? On what day? On the Sabbath. No, there are six days to do this kind of work. About how could he do this? And they're shocked. Maybe for us, we're like, what's this is so shocking? What was the, the big deal? There's just, just an, another day. Well, in those days, the Pharisees had made a massive deal about the Sabbath. They had added on this whole religious system about keeping the Sabbath and making themselves holy on this day. And so to get a little of the context and see the origins of this command, go back to Exodus 20 with me for just a moment. Turn over there. You can keep your finger in or a note in, the, in John 5. We'll come back in just a moment. But go to the, the second book in your Bible. Genesis is the first one. Exodus is the second one. It's been a few years since preached, I preached through Exodus. And so let's just see this here. Exodus chapter 20. And, and this fourth command begins in verse 8. Exodus 20, verse 8 says this. I just want to read it so we can see exactly what it says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There's the text. There's the command. This was a day that was to be a day like unlike any other. A day like no other. When you think of the Sabbath, just think of it that way. A day like no other for them. A day that was uh, to be holy and set apart where nobody was to do any work. And that, that's the, the, the basis of the command. And then throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, the, the books that will come and later in Exodus even and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there's further instruction about how to keep this and what this looks like. And yet even on top of that, the Jewish people, the Pharisees in those days had created this whole elaborate system of what could be done and what couldn't be done, how you knew you were holy or how you knew you were unholy and out of bounds like this. Like it was, it was so, laborious ironically on a day that was not to have any labor i mean it included uh, uh, crazy things like somebody somewhere had determined that you could only go a certain amount of steps outside of your house uh, and not be considered work 
And so you had this like circumference around your house that was considered inbounds. And then you could go a certain amount of steps outside of bounds. And so in order to not break that and to know you're holy, they would like measure out a string with however long that was in your strides and tie it around your waist into your house. And so, you know, and then when you'd feel the like tug, you would know, okay, well, I have to stay back or I'm going to be unholy and I'm going to be breaking the Sabbath. Furthermore, like you couldn't even look in a mirror on the Sabbath day. Why? Because if you looked in the mirror and you saw gray hair and you might be tempted to pluck it out, that plucking out of gray hair, guess what? Work. Then you would be unholy. So don't even look in the mirror. You can't do it. If you look in the mirror, unholy. I'm like increasingly having to not look in the mirror so I can't see my own gray hairs that continually pop up. It seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Seems crazy, and these are just two examples of multitude that they had added to all this. And thankfully, these things are no longer uh, uh, burdensome to us. We don't follow it, let it be just simply because they're from the Pharisees and not from the Scripture. But thankfully, even the Sabbath keeping, the observance of this day, was just a shadow pointing to a greater reality that we now see clearly in Christ. Christ who is our Sabbath rest. Christ who who has set us free from the law, perfectly fulfilling it. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 teach us. Thankfully, we don't have to. But I bring up all this because this is the context that we come into. It was the Sabbath, a shocking day, this hypervigilant self-righteousness about the Sabbath that was a means for holiness. And so now you have this man bewildered by like this new usage of his legs, uh, picking up his mat, walking around in all of this uh, mat in hand, breaking Sabbath rules left and right ecstatic, leaping like a deer, you know, we can imagine, uh, and, and, and everybody is super excited about it happening, aren't they? No, they want to know who told him to pick up the mat, not who healed him. They're mad about why he was breaking the Sabbath rules and not amazed that he can actually walk. And they're incredulous that somebody would tell him to actually break the Sabbath. Who would tell you to break this? But it's also incredible to me that the man doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't even know who told him these things. It's unlike, it's in contrast to the previous passage where that Roman official whose son was, was on the verge of death, he knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew the reputation and traveled a great distance in desperation to get the healing that he wanted. But this guy was totally unaware says that Jesus slipped out of the crowd. There's a crowd in the place. He's like exercising that like disappearing act that is, you know, God, he can actually do. But you know, here's the thing. We're not unlike the Jewish people. We're really good at messing up the commands of God, aren't we? And adding on to them, making these self-righteous rules of missing the whole point of God's uh, 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 purposes and giving commands of missing his protecting love uh, towards us and what is behind the commands and setting up like our own protections in order to keep them. Of setting up our own boundaries and missing God's intention behind them. And the, the examples abound in our culture. 
There's the systems that we set up, you know, to, you know, to honor commands like uh, uh, to, from Hebrews 13 to uh, keep uh, the marriage bed holy and undefiled. And we create whole systems like a purity culture to protect these things. We, we know commands to avoid drunkenness and we set up all of these commands in order, uh, which, which can be good. But if we miss the heart behind them and God's protecting love in them in order to achieve our own holiness... And we've made it about ourselves and not about the Lord. We mess things up when we make God's commands just like a checkbox to earn God's favor. So we can uh, deem ourselves holy or unholy, like I read in my Bible. Prayed today, told someone about Jesus, went to church. Actually, I've been here for both services. Extra holy. And we deceive ourselves into thinking our own self-righteousness saves us and makes us holy and desirous before the Lord. But you know what makes Jesus' second encounter with this man that much more shocking in verse 14? So I know like Jesus had a divine appointment with him twice, not once, but twice at the pool and then at the temple in verse 14. All this happens, they don't know. They're all incredulous. Jesus finds him in the temple. Why is he there? Likely showing himself to the priest. It's right out there like, hey, look what happened. And look what Jesus tells him. Verse 14, back in John 5. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's one thing to make someone walk. It's a whole nother thing to tell a person to sin no more and warn him of the consequences of sin. Then let's just be clear in a few things in a second. Like Jesus isn't teaching karma in this passage. Like good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And so, you know, bad things happen in your life. Well, you must be a bad guy. No, that's not what he's, he's, he's getting here. But it is kind of inferring, I think, that is, it's likely the man's sin 38 years prior that crippled him in the first place. It was a consequence of that. But that's not always the case. He's not, he's not teaching this, but he's pointing out the heart of the matter. And how does the man respond in verse 15 to Jesus' call to deny himself, take up his cross and follow him, or in this way, sin no more, that nothing worse? How does he respond in verse 15? Well, let me ask this for a moment. What have we seen all along in John at the words of Jesus and the proclamations of who he is in response to his work to heal and various other things. Let me just ask you this. Let's zoom out a little bit. What is John's whole purpose in writing this gospel? We've said it almost every single week in our messages. John is very clear why he wrote these 21 chapters for us. He lays it out in John 20, verse 31. These things I have written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in his name. And what's the key word that is totally absent from these 18 verses? I wish we would get to verse 15. It's not something that is missing or omitted I wish it said, and he believed, as did everybody else in the temple. And yet we're giving no indication that he did. 
invalid man who is healed never thanks Jesus, never worships him. It never says that he believes. And God healed him anyway, targeted him and a multitude of people to make this man walk. His healing isn't based on his faith, that's obvious. Lest we made that mistake in the previous passage, thinking that the official son is healed because his faith. No, it's not because of the measure of our faith. We don't want to make that mistake. But what is his response? Verse 15. He goes and tattles on Jesus. And this inflames them, doesn't it? He broke their rules. Not, the, not God's rules. Let's not make that mistake. God kept God's law uh, perfectly. He stood in our place. He never broke it once, but he broke their rules. And he claimed to be God's son. God's son who is always at work. God's son who is at work in this passage. Yes, God rested on the seventh day of creation. Why? Well, he did it to show his finished good work in creation and to set us an example. But it's not like that every Saturday since the creation of the world, God has clocked out. No, we can rest because God doesn't have to. The weight of the world does not rest on our shoulders, but is held in place in the palm of his hand like this little pin. Carefully held and hardly felt. God knows exactly what he is doing. See, it's in the moments where we wonder, what in the world are you doing that we can be sure that he is actually doing something because he is always at work in, in creation and in our lives, even if it is just breaking down our incorrect perceptions about him and about holiness or showing us the folly of trying to save ourselves or just blowing over the house of cards that our self-made rituals really are. This too is God's work amongst his creation. But it begs the question for us, why would God heal a man who, for all it seems to us, remained dead in his sin? Why this man? Amongst the many who maybe would believe in him. Why in our own life? Do those who've made a mess of their bodies and haven't taken care of it seem to live uh, forever? And yet we pray and we plead in our sickness and do what we can. And yet, not healed. The same question. Why, why, why are millions of babies born each year? to families who don't want them and then lead you know and then neglect them abuse them or even abort them when there are countless godly couples who are childless why do truckloads of food get wasted every week when every night the bellies rumble in homes like thunder at dinner time why does it seem like the godly perish when the wicked prosper See, on this Sabbath day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was at work to show us that he cares more for our holiness than our healing. 
He cares more, church, for your holiness than your happiness. Now, don't make the mistake to think that, oh, the whole Christian life is morose and we just are set up. Like, no, he cares about our joy. He wants us to be truly happy. He wants us to be whole. Of course he cares, but his priority, his priority is our holiness. And in this story here, it's the healing that gets our attention, but it's the tearing down of their self-righteousness, the self-made Sabbath-keeping illusion of holiness that he is after. And the Sabbath was just the example in that day that showed the distorted view that they had of God in holy living, his work amongst us or his work not amongst us, and how we are holy in him. Let me say it again. Holiness is God's primary work amongst his children. Your sanctification, moment by moment, making you and me and all of his children more like Christ. Through the blessings of healing, through the answered prayers that go the way that we want them to go, and through the pain and the moments that we just can't make sense of. And the hard moments where it doesn't seem like fair is in these moments like it was here that God is committed to our holiness more than we than even we are more than our ability to keep up a self-made set of rituals. Like, that's commitment. Oh, no. That pales even in comparison to what God is doing and will do and has promised to do in your life and in my life to make us more like Christ. He is more wise. He is more perfect. He is more committed to our holiness than even we are. And the Jewish people in this text hate him for it and to kill him for it but can we church can we be among those who love him for it who 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 even in the moments where it doesn't make sense we believe we worship him and we thank him for it no gratitude no belief no worship in this text it's it's painfully absent and yet it is the very thing that god is at work to produce in us a gratitude for his presence a gratitude for his love a, a gratitude for his work in us that we believe he is god we believe he is good we believe he is at work in us and we worship him for it we love him for it can we be those who believe and worship him pray with me and let's ask god's help to do that and then sing to him because of it god in heaven your word is before us your truth set before us. And we need your help to understand it. To understand moments like these, God. We just begin by giving you these moments. Maybe there's a moment like this in our life where it doesn't make sense. We're asking you for something. We don't have it. We're wondering why and all that, God. We just give it to you. 
And Lord, we give you the desires of our heart. That question, do you want to be healed, haunts us. And maybe for some, that right now is even at work. Do you want to be saved? Do you want Christ? Do you want to follow him? God, would you this morning make sin repulsive in all of our hearts? And would you make following you, even with a massive cost, more desirous? Would you save those who even now your spirit is at work in? Would you rescue those who are your children, snared by sin? Give them the way of escape. Show them the way out. That we might all be people who say, yes, God, yes, yes. It's not a dumb question. It's not obvious. Yes, 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 we want the way. Yes, we want healing. Yes, we want saved. Yes, we want to be sanctified. Yes, we hate our sin. Lord, your work among us is, uh, is glorious. Your work among us is beautiful. Your work among us is painful. And so whatever you're doing in our lives individually and corporately, we, we, we just lean into it and trust you. Ask that you would do the work that only you can do. Make us more holy. Make us more like Christ. Lead us forward, God. Make us more grateful. Make our belief more resolute, not in our own strength, but in yours and what you have done. Make our worship more exclusive to you and to you alone. We give it all. There really is none like you. We believe it, we confess it, and we worship you because of it. And we pray all these things now in Christ's name. And all redemption said, amen.